God, give us the faith to behold that very truth today as we open your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you are 40 or younger, do me a favor, please, and grab your phone and turn off your Wi-Fi. Make sure it's not connected to the church network uh, because it's affecting our capacity to stream. So I'm coming off like a robot in the in the streaming, you know, it's not. So if you're on our Wi-Fi network, if you're 40 or younger, would you turn off? And I didn't, the reason I said 40 or younger is because if you're older than that, it will take you the whole sermon to find your Wi-Fi setting. And I want you to pay attention to the sermon. So you guys can stay on the Wi-Fi. You're fine. One of you will accidentally play a video your, your daughter sent you or something. Like, I know how this works. So uh, you're welcome, Craig. You have all the Wi-Fi you want. You would open your Bibles to Acts 18. We're going to be in Acts 19, but I want to pivot from 18. Acts 18, 27 through 28. We've talked a lot a number of weeks ago about this man named Apollos. And really our focus when we talked about Apollos was how we can become like him and be helpful to the saints, to be of great help to those who through grace believe that's a good thing to talk about. That's really what we're doing in our theological leaders program. We're just trying to produce a bunch of Apollos. Well, the question we didn't ask that needs to be asked also is, how can we be like the kind of person who is helped by the Apollos of the world? You see, if you look at that text, it says that when he got to Corinth, verse 28, uh, well, the, at the end of verse 27, when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. I want you to notice here that Apollos is not doing marriage counseling. He's not helping people figure out their life or their work situations. He's not actually directly doing anything for the Christians in the church. His ministry is in the public square and is targeting specifically those who do not believe. And yet, it says that his ministry was of great help to those who believed. So the question is, how? Why? Well, because if you love Jesus, if you have a zeal for Christ, then the news that the kingdom of darkness is crumbling is good news to you. And evidence of the victory of Jesus is of help to you. If Jesus, if you have a love for Christ, if your Christianity extends beyond mere spiritualized or sanctified narcissism, you should be able to hear about victories that have nothing to do with you, and they should make you happy. They should help you. So one thing is, like, let's try to be like Apollos's. Let's help greatly help those who believe. But let's also try to be like the kinds of people who can see God's work in other people's lives and feel personally helped by that, not because anything's happening for us per se, but because the name of Jesus is being lifted up and that's what we are most interested in. If Jesus is extolled, then I get excited. If the cause of Christ is advanced, then I feel uh, edified, right? So how do you be at Apollos? Well, that's one conversation, but also let's be the kind of people as described in this text where we can simply be helped, be encouraged, be edified by evidence of Christ 
establishing his victory in the world, by evidence of Jesus glorifying his name. It doesn't all have to come down to helping us immediately. It should, there should be a, a, an itch in your inner soul if you're in Christ that is just a desire to see him magnified. And sometimes sermons need to not just be about here's how to help you or call you to this next step or so forth. Sometimes the sanctification needs to be, here's how to stop thinking about you and be excited about what Jesus is doing in the whole world. And today is that kind of sermon. So if you'll look at Acts 19, now our main text, we're going to just look at a particular section there, Acts 19 verses 23 through 27. And it says, about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours will come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence. She, whom all Asia and the world worship. Well, there are times in the scripture when an opponent of the gospel says something that is more right than he knows. Um, an example of this is when Pontius Pilate had King of the Jews inscribed above the cross of Jesus. He was more right than he knew. Another example is in John 11, when Caiaphas, the high priest, says of Jesus, it is better for you, the people, that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He's more right there than he knew. In fact, John adds a parenthetical comment saying, Caiaphas, the high priest, did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So there are these times when the enemies of God, when the opponents of the gospel say something that is more right than they realize. And Demetrius in our text in Acts 19 is one of those instances he says, essentially, some bad things are about to unfold for us, right? Um, we have our wealth in this business of furnishing idols and furnishing the temple. And it's extremely possible that this trade, if Paul keeps having his way, if the gospel keeps having its way, it's extremely possible that this trade will come to nothing. He also says, this goddess that we worship she could be deposed of her magnificence. And then he also says, the temple could come to nothing. Well, he was right about all of that. He was right about all that. All of his fears were indeed confirmed, and it actually was much worse, or depending on how you look at it, much better than he realized. Artemis, the goddess, would be deposed of her magnificence, and that's putting it mildly. The temple would be counted as nothing. That's putting it mildly. 
and this would all lead to massive cultural transformation. Let's talk about this third point real quick, this idea that when a God is overturned or a new God is brought in, the whole culture is affected. He's essentially saying that there will be economic transformation if the religious system changes in Ephesus. He's predicting economic transformation. He's saying this trade of ours will fall into disrepute. And that trade was intermingled into the overall economy of Ephesus. So one thing Demetrius is predicting is that if this God is no longer worshiped, the economy will change. And then he says that this temple will come to nothing. Well, the temple of Artemis was the civic identity of the city. It, the reason, if you read the whole text, which I won't take time to do today, you'll see all of these near riots and outbursts and confusion. It's because if this goddess is deposed, then their whole identity as a, civil, as a city is transformed. And then he says, you know, this goddess could be deposed of her magnificence. So he's saying the economy could change dramatically. The, the, the civic life of the identity of our city, the government, everything could be changed. And our worldview could be changed. This goddess who appears to us to be magnificent now could perhaps not appear magnificent any later. And it's just really important to understand that the only people who think that religion doesn't build culture are a bunch of naive Christians who don't know what they're talking about. Every other, every other group of faith adherents of any faith understand that the economy and the government are all intermingled in a city's gods, in a people's gods. And, and so Demetrius is in some ways wiser than some of our modern day. The kingdom doesn't take on any practical uh, function writers that you'll see in the Christian world from time to time. The truth is, is that lives and careers and cultures and cities and nations are built on religion. And when God tears down a people's idols, their way of life gets torn down too. And this is a very clamorous and catastrophic thing. People get frightened and they get filled with rage because they can see that their time under their old way of life is short. So when, for instance, I mean, let me, just, let me just ring a few bells and see if these resound with you. Suppose something occurred in our life where people's worship of the idol of health was threatened. Would they, would they behave fearfully? Would they behave irrationally? And so forth. Suppose the idol of economic security was threatened. Wouldn't people behave fearfully and irrationally? Suppose the idol of national security was threatened. People behave irrationally and fearfully. And that is because the thing they worship and trust in, they've built their whole life in. Not just their Sunday morning time slot, guys, but the whole life is built around the gods that we worship. Well, when people begin to act this way as they did in Ephesus with near riots and, you know, little backroom meetings and so forth, all too often modern Christians misinterpret these developments as a sign that the gospel is losing. Uh, I had a dream last night that I was leaving my house late at night 
and a raccoon attacked me. I mean, he didn't like hurt me, but he like threatened to hurt me. And in my dream, I lost my man card because I ran back into the house and closed the door. And when I got back in the, in the house, I thought to myself, that raccoon was afraid because, I think, it, and this is my explanation of my dream, that raccoon was afraid because she had her babies in the bush. And, you know, when Christians interact with a world full of rage and angst and clamor, we think we're losing. It's like, no, they're just trying to protect this thing. They're afraid. They're afraid of losing. It's not a sign of the gospel's uh, defeat. It's a sign of the gospel's victory. It's a sign of the gospel's power. Paul is just, Demetrius is afraid of Paul saying this one thing. He says it in the text, idols made of hands are not gods. See, that's, imagine if you had a group of friends and they invited you over, but you didn't really read the email and you got there late, and uh, you walk in kind of loud, and you know, like kind of like I would walk into something. You, know, you walk in loud, you greet everybody loudly, you swing the door open, and they all turn around and like yell at you, but with like whisper yells. You're like, whoa, what's going on? And you realize that for the next, for the last five hours when you weren't there, the reason they were gathered was to build an intricate house of cards, right? And so for the last five hours, They've been whispering and moving extra slowly as they built this thing, this improbable thing, this thing that really has no strength. And you walk in like, you know, well, hello there. And your wind is threatening to them, you know, let alone, you know, it's, friends, this is how the world responds when the simple truth of God is brought in no matter what method, into their room in which they've been for however long attempting to build a house of cards. Because anything not built on the truth is a house of cards. Anything not built on the truth of God is a house of cards. And we see people getting upset as like, man, like, I don't think we have a chance here. People are just really upset. It's like, no, they're upset because they're about to lose. And that's what we see in this text. They're upset because they're about to lose. And what we have to understand is that they were going to lose because that, has, that is what God decided would take place, not only in Ephesus, but in all the world. The temple did come to nothing. I tried to load a picture of the temple so that you could kind of see what they were thinking about when, when uh, they were when they were worried about the, the future of the temple. Do we have a picture on the, the temple? I don't know. I don't know if it loaded or not. So that's what they saw, right? That's, that's the temple of Ephesus. It's considered one of the uh, ancient wonders of the world. So that's what they were saying. That's when Demetrius was saying, we are worried that this temple may come to nothing. And now let's see what the temple looks like today. So Demetrius was right. He was upset because he was afraid, and he was afraid because he was losing. Uh, he also says that Artemis, the great, may be deposed of her magnificence. Well, let's look at Artemis. Let's see a picture of her. Does that strike any awe in you? What, what, that looks like a cartoon to me. 
Some of you watch anime. That's something I'd see in anime, you know. Those are breasts, by the way. She's a, go- a fertility goddess. You know, it's, it's you, listen, Demetrius is worried that Artemis will be deposed of her magnificence. Okay, when they looked at that picture, they saw magnificence. Now, think about this for a minute. Thousands and thousands of people would look at that and see magnificence. And now, the only people that would look at that with magnificence are like, you know, Wiccan practitioners with too many cats, you know? Like, like this is not magnificence. And we all know that. We, we, we know that because the shift has taken place. The shift of the gospel's victory has been taken place. Demetrius was exactly right. Well, he was more right than he knew because the truth is, is that this was what Jesus was going to do everywhere all over the world. Look at Colossians 2, 13 through 15. Colossians 2, 13 through 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forbid, forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. So we are a self-proclaimed gospel-centered church. Good for us. But when we talk about the gospel, don't we really mostly talk about the benefits listed in verses 13 and 15, which are we were made alive, in Christ, and our sins were forgiven. But if we are a gospel-centered church, there's another element of the gospel's victory that Paul describes in Colossians 2.15. And it's not a personal one, it's a global one. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and that's speaking of the spiritual rulers, the spiritual authorities, the false gods, and put them to open shame. And so I can show you a picture of, here's the temple what it was then, here's the temple what it was now. And I could show you that all over the world. I could show you some idol which struck fear and awe in the hearts of individuals, which we now see as exceedingly shameful. So we need to celebrate sometimes. We just need to celebrate the work that God has done and is doing in the world to bring all other rulers and authorities to open shame. And the truth is, is that the more we celebrate this, the more confident we will be in that trajectory of the gospel in the world, and the more we will actually be a part of him doing that, because the truth is there are still some idols, some idol worship to deal with. Uh, During... Demetrius's day, though, he says, he says in the text, all of Asia, indeed the whole world, worship this goddess. Like, well, all of Asia for sure, all the whole world, maybe not Artemis, but something like Artemis. The world that Demetrius is speaking in is a world in which there's a tiny minority of people who belong to this sect called the Way. And this tiny minority of people 
believe that Jesus is God, and the Jews hate them, and the pagans hate them, and this tiny minority of people are living in a world filled with temples and idols everywhere, all over the world. Now, listen to what Athanasius wrote. Athanasius, 400s, I believe. I should have wrote that down now. 400 AD-ish. Listen to what he wrote, you know, 350 years or so after Demetrius. Since the Savior came to dwell in our midst, not only does idolatry no longer increase, but it is getting less and gradually ceasing to be. Similarly, not only does the wisdom of the Greeks no longer make any progress, but that which used to be is disappearing. And demons, so far from continuing to impose on people by their deceits and oracle givings and sorceries, are routed by the sign of the cross if they so much as try. On the other hand, while idolatry and everything else that opposes the faith of Christ is daily dwindling and weakening and failing, the Savior's teaching is increasing everywhere. Wisdom, then, the Savior. Worship, then, the Savior, who is above all. He meant that. He believed that. Jesus is above all and mighty, even God the Word, and condemn those who are being defeated and made to disappear by him. And this is what God has been doing for the last 2,000 years in the world. He is bringing the reality of the emptiness of idolatry, the emptiness of false gods. He is showing that. He is putting them to open shame. For the first 1,000 years, God primarily eliminated idolatry in the Middle East and Europe, and you can scan through any robust work of church history like Philip Schaff's The History of the Christian Church and see for the last thousand years, idolatry of, the idolatry of our ancestors, for the most part, has been dismantled. Dismantled not in one year, not in two years, dismantled not and then not dismantled and then never have another problem with it, Gradually, systematically, progressively, idols are falling. There's a story of like St. Boniface, who was, who was a missionary to Germany in the 600s. And he had this particular group of people who were especially stubborn in their paganism, and they loved to worship this tree who they thought brought life and so forth to the people. And they would worship this tree, and he would tell them, stop doing that. Jesus is Lord, and they would worship the tree and he would say, stop doing that, Jesus is Lord, and so he just cut down the tree. And he did it while they watched. And they all thought, well, you know, I mean, at some point, the tree God is going to kill this dude, you know, and nope, the tree just fell down. And because he wasn't a modern Christian, he did another beautiful thing. He, not only did he chop down the tree, but he had some of the tree made into wood, and he turned that wood into his pulpit. That your God now is my table that holds the word of God. Systematically, throughout history, God wins, and he does it over and over and over again. Mostly so far, through one in one direction of the globe, but 
ultimately, it will go everywhere. And then, you know, so that took about a thousand years to get that all sorted out, which, you know, isn't that much time to God. And then there was a problem of idolatry in the Roman Catholic Church that kind of started around that time. And so guess what happened then? A Reformation took place. And the idols, I mean, even in the Catholic Church, idolatry has, has significantly diminished post-Reformation. And then after the Reformation, the church set out into other lands, the New World, Africa, India, the Orient, and some of that work has only been going on for a few hundred years. It took Europe a thousand years. And some of this work, like with Hudson and Kerry, Hudson in India and Kerry and Hudson in China and Kerry in India and Livingston in Africa. Friends, when the church has been at its best, it has understood that the downfall of false worship in the world is a simple inevitability. For these folks, the downfall of false gods was as inevitable as the night giving way to the rising sun. And that was a metaphor they loved because they believed that when Jesus took on flesh and became a man and he lived and died and rose again, that the sun had risen on the world and that in many, in many significant ways, the power of darkness lost that day and would never entirely regain its foothold. And so Athanasius again, he says, when the sun has come, darkness prevails no longer. Any of it that may be left anywhere is driven away. So also now that the divine epiphany of the word of God has taken place, the darkness of idols prevails no more. And all parts of the world in every direction are enlightened by his teaching. Now, you might think that Athanasius had to just had to be a positive thinking optimist who was living a relaxing, peaceful surroundings. Can we tell you something? If Athanasius had your life, he would have been seven times more optimistic than he was. Just, just, just let the ingratitude sink in for a second. On the contrary, Athanasius' life was filled with one of the most severe persecutions the world has ever seen. The emperor Diocletian had an all-out attempt to stamp out the Christian faith. Later, Athanasius had to stand practically alone for 40 years in his defense of the doctrine of the Trinity against rampant heresy, being exiled by the government on five occasions and sometimes in peril of his life. In fact, the story gave birth to a proverb, Athanasius contra mundum, which means Athanasius against the world. Athanasius against the world. Let God be true and all the world liars. And he did that because he never lost sight of the basic fact of world history, that the, world has be the word of God has become flesh, conquering the devil, redeeming mankind, flooding the world with light, which the darkness could not overcome. He just believed the Bible. When the church has been the most successful in leading the nations to Christ, they were the most persuaded about the inevitability of that event taking place. They simply believed God's promises. One of the shifts that's happened in our church over the, in, in modernity is we've stopped singing the Psalms. And one of the consequences of turning away from the Psalter as a source of regular worship 
is that we are missing all of these glorious global promises which God has installed there to encourage the saints not only to worship, but to get to work. And so a major fuel for the movement into the world over the first thousand years of Christian history was simply what God said every other page on the Psalms about what he planned to do when the Messiah came. So let me just give you a healthy uh, vitamin shot of militant victory Psalms this morning. That's our diet is so lacking. Psalm twenty-two, twenty-seven: All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will worship before thee. Psalm 37, 9 through 10, for evildoers will be cut off. For those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the earth. Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more. And you will look carefully for his place, and he will not be. But the meek will inherit the earth and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. Psalm 46, 8 through 10, come, Behold the works of the Lord, who has brought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Psalm 66, 4. All the earth will worship thee. All will sing praises to thee. They shall sing praises to thy name. Psalm 72, 8 through 11, he will rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. All kings will bow down before him. All nations will serve him. Psalm 86, 9, all nations whom thou hast made shall come and worship before thee, O Lord, and they shall glorify thy name. Psalm 138, 4 through 10, all the kings of the earth will give thanks to thee, O Lord, when they have heard the words of thy mouth. They will sing of the ways of the Lord for great is the glory of God. And this idea penetrated the early writers, the, the apostolic writers of the New Testament. Their favorite psalm, the one quoted more than any other psalm, is Psalm 110. And it appears in passages like Hebrews 10, uh, where it says, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. 1 Corinthians 15, 25, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. This is references to Psalm 110. So the truth is, is that the more confident we are in this process, the faster the world will be delivered from the tyranny of idolatry and delivered into the peaceable, merciful lordship of Christ. I want to speak to those here who may not be a Christian and are hearing this. It seems excessively militant. Actually, what it is is just excessively honest. Every single worldview that exists wishes to impose itself on the world. Even if that worldview is, there is no worldview. Every single truth claim, even the claim that there is no truth, seeks to gain dominance. It does not seek to eliminate itself. Right? All ideas are like, you know, cells. They, they all want to grow, right? So the question isn't, is this an especially, it, it's, how could Christianity be so arrogant as to think that it should be the way? Every way thinks it should be the way. 
not every way is being entirely honest with you about that aspiration. And some of the ways you believe in right now, they desire to take over. They just present with a faux humility because, to be honest, they simply couldn't stand the test of transparency. The test of transparency with any idea is, if this took hold entirely, would it be good or bad? Right? Would it be good or bad? And I think, I think the only way to answer that question, if you're not a believer, you're just thinking about these things, the only way to answer that question would just be to really try for some intellectual honesty and ask, like, how did this all get here? Am I being appropriately grateful for it? The, the, the fact that I can read, how did that come to be a thing? What's with all the colleges and the hospitals and so forth? Did that stuff just drop out of thin air as if it just was and always meant to be? So the, the problem with criticizing the gospel, the problem with criticizing Bible is Cornelius Van Til describes it. He was on a train one day and he saw a little girl crawl up on her dad's lap and slap him in the face. And he thought, if she had not, if he, if, if, if he did not give his lap, she could not have reached his face. And all of the fundamental tools you might use to criticize this very uh, transparent argument that is Christ's desire to make the whole world his. Anything you would use to criticize that would just be dependent on you climbing up on his lap to reach his face. All of the arguments about fairness, about goodness, about kindness, about mercy, about caring for the weak and so forth, that didn't just drop out of thin air. That came through this actual movement that we're describing here. Let's put it this way. Do you think the rights of the marginalized the weak, the poor, were better when people were worshiping trees in Germany? And the answer is absolutely not. It was a strength religion. It was a religion of the strong. The strong did what they pleased, and everyone else just had to accommodate that strength. So it's just a good day, especially with all that's going on in the world. It's just a good day to say, God said he was going to win. God said he was going to win, and there is a lot, a lot of evidence if he, that he is winning. This used to be kind of the way that Christians thought, and it also happened to coincidentally be the time in which we were the most productive in all the world. And there was a theologian, uh, Charles Hodge is his name. You might have heard of him. He was a Princeton theologian. Princeton was founded as, a, as a, primarily a theological school by people that believed this stuff. It's kind of what I mean by climbing on the lap to slap the face. And Charles Hodge had these kids who found out that um, one of their dad's friends was going to go be a missionary in some faraway land. And they wrote a letter, the two kids, and one of them was 10 and the other one was like eight. They wrote him a letter to give to what they called the heathen, which back in the 1800s wasn't such a loaded word, you know. Um, and they wrote this letter, and the letter actually starts with, Dear Heathen. And I, I want to close with this childlike hopefulness that simply was trusting what 
God's word said. Dear heathen, (laughs) the Lord Jesus Christ has promised that the time shall come when all the ends of the earth shall be his kingdom. And God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. And if this promise, if this was promised by a being who cannot lie, why do you not help it come sooner by reading the Bible (laughs) and attending to the words of your teachers and loving God and renouncing your idols and take Christianity into your temples? And soon there will not be a nation, no, not a space of ground as large as a footstep that will want a missionary. My sister and myself have, by some small self-denials, procured $2, which are enclosed in this letter, to buy tracts and Bibles to teach you. (laughs) Like, we're all so moaning and growling and sighing about how the world just won't believe. It's like, when was the last time we told them to? Like, when was the last time we said, believe? Jesus is Lord. He's actually Lord. That's not a a truth statement which is yours to accept or deny. It just is a reality. It's, it's, It's gravity. Jesus is Lord. Are we approaching the victory of Christ with an appropriate hopefulness? See, Demetrius has these three negative fears, and they all come true. But the flip side of those are all promises for us. The pagan temples will come to nothing, but Paul assures us that we are being built up into a dwelling place for God. The goddess will be deposed of her glory, but the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. The systems of this world built on idolatry will crumble, and the kingdom of God will take their place. Isaiah 2, 2 through 3, 2 through 5 says, It shall come to pass in the latter days, that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he shall judge between the nations, and he shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Our communion text today is from Colossians. 2, 13 through 15, the text we looked at earlier, which says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Let's pray. God, as we now have time set aside to celebrate the giving of your, yourself for our sake, we, are, we see, God, in Colossians 2, that you didn't just give yourself for our sake, but for the sake of many who were deluded and who are deluded. God, who are deceived. God, we have no uh, boast to say that 
we would be any different. We were the same. We, we can fall under the same foolish ways of thinking even today. But God, thank you, not only that for the individual work of salvation that you're offering, that you've made possible through the cross, but thank you, Lord, for the hope we have for the future of the world as your gospel moves from strength to strength. So now, Lord, as the believers in this room partake in the communion, God, may our hearts be filled with gratitude and confidence in you. You gave us everything. You gave us yourself. And then you rose and ascended to the right hand of the Father where the word says time and time again, you will rule until all your enemies are put under your feet. We love you, Lord, and are thankful for you. We're thankful for your gospel, which sets hearts free from darkness. That's the centerpiece of all of this. The centerpiece of all of this is not um, the enforcement of my will against someone else's will. Uh, the centerpiece of all of this is not legislation. The centerpiece of all of this is light coming into dark hearts. That's, the, that's, the, that's, what, that's what we're talking about. Thank you, God, that that's possible only through your gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.